You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. It is great to be with you this morning. Um, I think I was here back in January. It was a little bit cooler in here. Uh, and, uh, and thankful for the opportunity to be with you this morning and to look at God's Word. Uh, I'll be diving in uh, in a series that you all have been doing out of First um, Peter. And so uh, we're going to look at First Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 18 to 25. So let's stand as I read to us God's Word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." This is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Let's pray that uh, His Spirit would help us understand these words. Lord Jesus, we are grateful this morning to gather to worship You. We are grateful that You have given us uh, Your Word. You make promises that Your Word, when we delight in it, will be a blessing, that it will be as streams of water, and we will be like trees that are planted that draw nourishment and strength from it. And so we pray that that would be um, the result this morning. And we know that that can happen because of the work of Your Spirit. So we pray that You would help us now uh, to be mindful of who You are for the pattern that You set for us and to be mindful for the work that You have done in and through us. And we pray it in Your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Recently at our denomination's General Assembly, there was a dialogue or discussion uh, one afternoon. I was not actually there, but I read about it this week in By Faith that was held by Tim Keller and Ligon Duncan. And you may be familiar with uh, both of them, uh, teaching elders in our denomination uh, in two totally different contexts, uh, one being New York City and the other being in Jackson, Mississippi, where I'm actually from. And I can promise you they're two totally different contexts. Uh, 
And so they had this discussion, and they do this uh, pretty much year in and year out, and it draws uh, a lot of people. And uh, this particular discussion or dialogue was how we as Christians and how the church are to engage our cultural moment. How are we to interact uh, with our culture, uh, whether it be in Stanton, Virginia, or Lexington, Virginia, or New York City, or Jackson, Mississippi? And I think, uh, you know, Keller gave a lot of insight into kind of his finger on the pulse of culture. We have to understand where we are as a culture. And so the article kind of gives his insight of where we are as a culture. And then I'm going to read uh, just an excerpt from it. He says, This is an unprecedented time in human history. There have always been relativists. There have always been doubters of God. There have always been atheists. What's new is the breadth of conviction that there is no such thing as truth. There have never been whole societies built on that idea. Never. He explained that, uh, the article goes on to say that that there's fallout from this conviction and it's seen in a a myriad of ways in our society. You know, the collapse of popular opposition to same-sex marriage, uh, increasing uh, hostility to Christianity in cultural uh, institutions such as academia, uh, the arts, uh, to what Keller calls also the rise of the nuns. Uh, that uh, a reference to a Gallup survey that say more and more people are uh, are saying they have no religious affiliation, whereas in the past people would associate themselves with some form of religious association. More and more people are saying there is no religious affiliation. And so Keller goes on to say that America's facing crisis in almost every sphere. And this is a quote. He says, Global capitalism is sick. There's a crisis in education. Nobody knows what we're producing. There's a crisis in politics, a crisis in the academy, a crisis in the arts, a crisis in the middle class, a crisis in the family. He says, And for Christians, the crisis could increasingly look like decreasing religious freedom especially if courts decide that freedom of association and religious exemptions really aren't compatible with the increasing spirit of inclusiveness. But then he says this statement right here, and this is what caught my attention in the context of 1 Peter. He says, it could be very wintry for Christians. It could be very wintry for Christians. You see, as all of these changes are happening in our world around us, how is it that we uh, interact, uh, engage with our culture, or in particular with our neighbor? If this is the climate in which we are moving towards or maybe already live in, how is it are we supposed to live? What are we to do with this? You see, I think that's an important question that... We ask in 2013, but it really is not a new question. I think it's a question that Christians were asking in the first century, and First Peter is a letter to them to help them uh, know how to live in the midst of their culture at that time. 
which also was confronting all types of changes as well. And see, I think that there are a number of different ways that Christians uh, have interacted with this uh, in unhelpful ways uh, throughout history. Dick Kyes writes a book called Chameleon Christianity. I think he wrote it about 15 years ago, but I think it still applies. And what he does is he uses kind of two uh, metaphors uh, of how Christians interact or engage uh, with the culture. Uh, The first is as a chameleon. And we know what a chameleon does, right? A chameleon changes colors. A chameleon camouflages itself so as not to be seen, right? And so he says there's this thing called chameleon Christianity, where Christians blend in and become so much a part of the culture that they are not seen. They're not distinct. They're not set apart. Okay, so think of that image. But then he also uses another another metaphor for Christians. And this would be more of a tribal uh, mentality. And he uses the animal, the muskox, which I know very little about, uh, if nothing at all, other than what he says here. And he says they have a very strong herd mentality. That whenever the herd is threatened in some way, uh, the animals will actually move all of their young to the center. And then they all face inward uh, with their legs facing outward so that they can kick anything trying to threaten or break into that. And so he uses both the chameleon and the muskox as metaphors, illustrations of how Christians in the church have interacted with a changing culture, one that um, can be threatening, one that can be wintry, uh, to use Keller's words. And so I ask you this morning... Do you associate with one or the other? Do you try maybe as a Christian or as a church to become so relevant that you actually are irrelevant? You're not distinct. You're not set apart in any way as the people of God. Or have you become tribal? Are you actually fearful of someone coming in and being a part of this that maybe has different views than you do, thinks differently, has a different background socioeconomic, whatever it is. Maybe they live on your street. Maybe they are in um, your office place. And so First Peter is a book that helps us think about these things thousands of years after it was written. You see, I think what Keller is saying should really not come as a surprise. You know, I listened... Uh, to a a couple of sermons just to kind of jump into the flow of this series that you've been doing. And uh, I noticed that each sermon has a brief introduction to the series, which is just wonderful, by the way, because it gives you kind of a, a big picture of, hey, this is what I'm about to listen to. This is why this church is, uh, is listening or doing this series. And so I kind of, jotted down what that is if you've not listened to uh, this little blurb on First Peter, which I don't know whose voice it is, but it's pretty fantastic, by the way. That's a, that's a whole other thing. Uh, it says, First Peter is a letter written to Christians who are struggling to follow after Jesus in a world where they are increasingly seeing themselves 
as strangers. Uh, it, uh, both instruction how and an encouragement to live in relationships and vocations and communities and the church out of an identity formed by the uh, transforming and perfect work of Jesus. See, that's what's critical as we look at First Peter is he uh, spends all of chapter 1 and part of the beginning of chapter 2 hitting home that identity part. Because if you don't understand who you are as a believer, if you don't understand union with Christ, that you've been joined to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ through faith, then how to apply it really is going to be difficult, right? And so he spends a lot of time um, you know, going through that identity part, understanding what it is or who we are as Christians. And if you're not a believer this morning, I would encourage you to go back and to read chapter 1 and the beginning of verse 2, and, uh, or chapter 2. Beginning of chapter 2, he uses these word pictures uh, that... Uh, go back to the Old Testament, that go back to the people of God, Israel, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You know, this idea of ownership, of God owning us. And then he begins to unpack the practical. How is it that we live? And you know, historians, commentators talk about this is written to people who were living in, you know, the Greco-Roman world, uh, a world that was very progressive, a world that was very pagan, very secular. And here's this new thing called the church in the midst of that. And so how then were they to live? So hopefully that gives us some context. I know it gave me some context for why is Holy Cross doing a series on First Peter? Because we want to think about what it looks like to follow after Jesus Christ. Now, within the, the larger series is a smaller series of following under authority. And what we have in chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 13, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, are three kind of ways... Uh, that we are under authority. And I believe last week, I'm not sure who preached, um, but it was talking about maybe the bigger, the macro level of government, that we have officials that are over us. What does it mean to be under the authority of the government? And then what we have in our section uh, this morning in 18 through 25, what does it look like in the workplace um, but there's a lot more going on in 18 through 25. It's as if Peter just kind of explodes uh, with his words uh, in our verses. And then I believe maybe next week you look at what it looks like in the household. So it starts big and begins kind of funneling down, uh, thinking about the structure of authority, uh, thinking about uh the, the people or the institutions and things that God has put into place to rule and to, to govern over us. And so we're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 through 25. As I was thinking about this little unit here uh, in the midst of kind of the bigger that we've already talked about, 
this is kind of what I see as a, a summary of what Peter is saying. That we need to think about um, Christian practice follows after Christ's pattern, fully relying on Christ's power. Okay? So three things that I see in this passage. That Christian practice follows after Christ's pattern, but we have to fully rely on Christ's power in order to be able to do that. So let's look at these three things. First, let's think about the Christian practice here. Again, applying um, some moral, ethical teaching how it is that we are to live as Christians, understanding who we are as God's people. And like I said, here he's speaking to vocation or the structures of the workplace. And he says in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, what he does is he uses a word here that he's used previously, and we use it again, you'll see next week. And that is this idea of being subject to, submitting ourselves to the structure, to that that authority that is over us. And here he's using servants and masters. Maybe this gives us an idea uh, of a lot of the people that were a part of this body um, that they were servants, serving masters. And so he's writing within that context. I think for us to understand, um, you know, the context here, a lot of times when we see the word servant or maybe your translation says slave, you know, negative connotations come out of that. But if you read commentators who know a lot more about this, they, they talk about actually servants were very professional people. Many of them were musicians. Some of them were actually medical uh, practitioners uh, that were were educated in some way, but yet they were still bound to uh, their master, the person uh, to whom they worked. So Peter says that we're to submit ourselves, that we're to be governed by, to comply with, to abide by, to give yourself to. But here's the catch, and what makes this really, really difficult is... Not only to the good and the gentle, but to the unjust. And see, this is really hard for me. And the reason it's really hard for me is because I work for the most gentle, gracious man ever. Rod Mays is the coordinator of RUF. He hired me in my current position seven years ago. And when I say it is nothing but a pleasure to work for him, he's not a micromanager. Uh, He gives us space, but yet we know he's also there for us. And so it has been nothing but a pleasure to submit myself or to be subject to his authority within this structure of of RUF that we have, right? And so it's hard for me to think about what Peter's saying goes, well, it's easy to subject yourself when, you know, your boss, that authority is good. Or gentle. But he says, submit yourself even when they are unjust. Now, in a room this size with this many people, I know that several of you really struggle in the workplace with the person that you work for. It's just inevitable. 
you know, not a week goes by that I don't have a conversation with maybe somebody, a friend in Lexington, who's struggling with somebody that's over them in the workplace. And so here Peter is saying that we are to subject ourselves. But then he goes on, and I think that he kind of expounds on this. Not only in our Christian practice of this are we to submit ourselves, we're also to endure suffering. That we are to endure suffering. In other words, if we are a part of something that is unjust, suffering may come from it. And he says, you're to endure that suffering. Verse 19 says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You see, the gospel is full of irony. It's full of irony. That God would become man. That He would enter into our world. That the whole idea of the incarnation. That He would live perfectly and yet have to die for having lived perfectly, right? All of this irony. And here is another thing that is very ironic. Because Peter says suffering will come. And he says we are to endure that suffering. You know, it's so hard when suffering results from doing right. It's really hard when suffering is the result of doing that, that which is right and which is good. I mean, immediately what, who comes to mind is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That what he was doing was good and right. And he suffered. He suffered unjustly. He died for the sake of Christ in the gospel. So we're to submit ourselves. We're to endure suffering. And lastly, we're to entrust ourselves. That ultimately, we have to understand that we serve a higher authority. That even uh, the circumstances here on earth, as bad as they may be, the suffering that you uh, may be enduring, uh, even by doing right and doing what is good, it may be unjust. We have to recognize and entrust ourselves to a God who is sovereign over all things. That He is sovereign over our lives. He is sovereign over the workplace. He is sovereign over the boss that puts you over the edge. He is sovereign over all things, and we are to entrust ourselves to that sovereignty. That in following this authority, ultimately we are following His authority. Because He has every right to rule our lives. So that's the Christian practice. But the Christian practice follows after Christ's pattern. You see, what Peter does here is uh, he exhorts us as believers uh, to submit ourselves, to follow this authority, uh, to submit ourselves, to endure suffering, to entrust ourselves, trusting in God's sovereignty. And then he sets for us an example, which is a great thing. It's always good to have an example to look to and to think uh, about as we consider this. And he says that Christ is the example to follow. Look at verses 21 through 23. He says, For to this you have been called. In other words, this is our calling as Christians. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. So basically what Peter says is that Christ did the very things that we're called to do as believers. He did it perfectly, and He did it for us. We know that Christ suffered unjustly. And why is it that He suffered unjustly? Because He came into a sinful, broken world to save a sinful, broken people. And so He had to suffer. And yet He did everything perfectly so that we might be seen as perfectly righteous. And so Peter says He is the example of submitting Himself not only to His heavenly Father. Remember what He did in the garden. He asked that God would remove this cup from Him, right? And the Father chose not to do that. And Jesus submitted Himself to the will of God. He knew what He came to do. But not only did Jesus submit Himself, He endured suffering. He endured physical suffering. We know that He was beaten. He endured psychological suffering. His friends, His best friends, bailed on Him for us. But He entrusted Himself to God the Father and His plan. And so Peter says that this is a pattern for which Christians are to follow. It's a pattern or example or a model that we are to look to whenever we are confronted with uh, these problems or suffering that we believe comes to us unjustly, right? Knowing that Christ endured. You see, it would not at all be helpful if, if Peter just stopped here and put for us Christ as a, a pattern or example only. You see, that would really be frustrating or futile. You know, maybe as a kid growing up, you idolized some particular athlete. And so you worked very hard on a particular part of your game to fine-tune it, and you just found yourself failing over and over again, right? That's exactly what would happen if Peter left it as is to say, here's your example, follow after him. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives us verse 24. And in verse 24, this is where we see that we have been given the power of Christ. Verse 24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Again, he goes back to fortifying that identity that we have as believers. That through faith, you've been joined to Christ. And when you've been joined to Christ, you've been joined to His perfection, to His perfect obedience, to His righteousness. But also, His death on the cross becomes yours because it is our sin that put Him on the cross. And so we are then forgiven, but also we are given the resurrection. And so what we have here is we have the power of Christ. We have the power of the gospel at work 
in us. We have a power within us that when confronted with suffering, whatever it may be, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in a complete, completely different part of life, whenever confronted with these things, we have the power of Christ uh, at work within us. You see, practically speaking, you may find yourself in uh, a very difficult situation, whether it be work or something else. And there is great hope and there is great comfort that we have one that endured far more than we can even think or imagine. And he endured it for our sake so that we can be called Christians, that we can be called His children, that we can be called the people of God. That Christ came to live the life that we can't live, to die the death that we deserve, and to be raised again to give us hope uh, for all eternity. So this is what it looks like. This Christian practice that follows Christ's pattern fully relying on Christ's power for us to live as His people. So going back to kind of the introduction, to think about what does it look like in, um, in the world today? What does it look like in your own household? What does it look like in your workplace or in the community at large whenever you're confronted with suffering? How is it that you see uh, the hardships or the difficulties? How is it that you uh, are speaking about those things? How is it that you endure those things? Are you entrusting yourself to a greater authority? That God is sovereign over all things in our life. Are you submitting yourself to His authority? Think in verse 25. Peter gives us words of encouragement, reminding us of oversight and protection that we have as believers in a world that is broken by sin. He says, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You wonder if Peter writes that with tears in his eyes, thinking about his own life and how he strayed and betrayed and denied Jesus Himself as He was being uh, put on a cross. You see, those words there give us great hope and comfort that even though we are straying like sheep, that we have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Again, are we entrusting ourselves to that shepherd and to that overseer? My prayer is that the Lord would grant us grace to submit ourselves to the authority over us and give us strength to endure suffering and faith to entrust ourselves to His care. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we give You thanks uh, not only for these words, uh, but for their meaning. That our very identity, who we are as Your people, is rooted in the suffering that You endured in our stead and for our sake so that we can call ourselves Your children, 
your sheep, your people. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to submit ourselves in these structures that you have put into place. But not only that, that we would be able to endure suffering even when suffering comes as a result of doing that which is right and good in your eyes. That we would entrust ourselves to your plan and your will for our lives. Lord, we thank you that Peter gives us these words to instruct us for how we are to live in a changing world. And we pray that you would give us strength and power to do that. And we pray it in your precious name. Amen.